0: 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 6, 2. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, but even those that are not cannot remain hidden. this is God's word for us you may be seated
1: join me in praying for us this morning as well as God's word as it sits and rests on our hearts God thank you for your word uh, as we have just heard it It's where we're headed today um, it has impacts in all of our lives, and I just pray that you help us see that. Maybe more importantly, as we just sing that last song to you, um, God, it's your breath in our lungs, and so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise to you and you only. God, that resonates with me right now because I know who I am. I know my own tendencies. I know my own brokenness. And I know that uh, I take this, what I'm doing right now, very seriously, God. And I do not want my words to be shared here, but I want yours. And so I ask for your breath to come through my lungs, the heart that you've given me as I've prepared and as I've put together thoughts and ideas on on what I, I sense that you're doing within scripture, though I have confidence, God, in where we're headed, I pray that you just be my breath. And Holy Spirit, be the breath in the hearts of every individual sitting in this place, that it's not my words speaking to people, but it's your Spirit speaking to every single one of us. Encourage us and lead us well. For those of us in this room that need to hear hope because of where we're at, bring us hope this morning through your breath and through your Spirit. For those of us that need rebuke, bring it through your breath and through your Spirit. For all of us as we're wanting to learn and hear from you bring your breath and bring your spirit we're trusting that you're doing that already but begging you to continue we love you jesus with all of our hearts (laughs) all of our hearts in jesus name we pray amen My name's Jordan. I'm part of the staff team here. It's just my pleasure to be able to open up First Timothy with you this morning and be able to just dive into the text. And so uh, I think it would be wise for us to to just recognize where we've been, just a very short understanding of what First Timothy is, who's writing it, who he's writing to, to kind of just catch us all up. If it's your first time here or you haven't been able to make it over the past weeks or month or whatever, let's just all kind of get on the same playing field, right? So the author of First Timothy is not Timothy, it is the Apostle Paul who's writing to uh, a young pastor, and his name is Timothy. He's pastoring a church in uh, the town called Ephesus. And so, in lots of, uh, well, in every way, uh, this is known as um, a, a pastoral epistle. In other words, it's a pastoral letter. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, uh, speaking to him, teaching and training him on how he should lead the church in Ephesus. But yet, God saw it fit to put in the canon of Scripture that we all read. This is not something that, that only pastors and church leaders should read. There's something there for every single one of us, or God wouldn't put it inside of Scripture for us to read and to know well. And so that's what we've been doing, is we've been unpacking this. We've been seeing uh, how Harvest is set up uh, as a church hopefully done within the authority of scripture, but as well for the church to say, hey, this is what God's design is, so that you know it, and as well that you can just, we can all hold the church accountable to be exactly what it is supposed to be in God's design. The people of the church are charged with holding the church leadership accountable, and I think that's where the application for every single one of us comes in. Church leaders are supposed to read it and apply it and say, man, how do we do this well? The congregation, the, the people of the church read it to say, how can we hold the leadership accountable to them leading the church really, really well? Remember that the church is full and full of broken individuals. Sin has come into our world, not just our world, but it's come into our lives, and it's like just torn apart everything that we do, everything that we believe, everything that we think, in every way that we operate, sin does not leave anything untouched. That's what unifies us as people in this room. And our pastors and our elders are no different. Sin is in our world and we're all susceptible susceptible to to falling um, into sin. What it's good for us to know about the church the church is not a group of elders who come together to lead the church so that the people can just come and experience or just attend on a Sunday morning what the leadership has put together. That's not at all what scripture points to as the church being. The elders yes are overseers. The elders are shepherds. The elders are people um uh are, are they are to equip the people of the church um while the people of the church own the ministry of the church. In a lot of ways, it's like a marriage where we have leadership and we have people and we're doing this thing together. But again, in our broken world, as sin has come in, we see ourselves as individuals. And in lots of ways, this has broken the big seed church. So our challenge is to come and hear and to say, man, how is God calling us as individuals into this place that is not supposed to be individualistic, but we're doing something together. And I think that's where we're going to see um, uh, our place in the midst of this scripture. What we've seen thus far in, in 1 Timothy is, um, is a very clear call to what the gospel is. The church is supposed to know the gospel, lead within the gospel, stand underneath the authority of the gospel, always point to the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's only hope. The only hope that is found is found there and there alone, not in anything that we do. So that things that we do may bring temporary joy along the way, we will not find ultimate hope in that. It is only the gospel of Jesus. And I think 1 Timothy really clearly defines what the church should be founded on, and in some ways what the church should not be founded on. We've also seen God's call. Uh, The church should be leading God's people to be sharing the gospel to people outside of our church congregation. It is our call because it is God's desire that all men um, are saved. And so we're go, going out into the world representing Jesus. That's a big part of who we are. We come to this place, we worship Jesus, we go out of this place representing Jesus, right? We've also seen the church structure of eldership and deacons. We've kind of walked this path together. Last week, we saw Paul, um, what he started is um, a, a, an address of two different types of people, we see in um 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1, the first couple of verses there, he's addressing people of different ages. And he talked to them for just a few minutes, talked to the church, talked to them. But we spent majority of our time last week looking at a second group of people that Paul is addressing, and that's widows. How's the church supposed to handle widows? How are widows supposed to handle the church? What are these groups of people do together? How do you care for people? Today, he's going to address in our text two more groups of people. Elders most prominently, what we're going to see. And then once we get into chapter 6, we're going to see bond servants. We'll get there soon enough. Um, Today, I do realize there is a potential awkwardness in this conversation. um, Because the the first verses in, in 517 start off saying, Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor especially of those who teach and preach. <laughs> Bring it. Have uh, you guys ever seen those videos online of like celebrities getting pulled over by police officers and they're like, do you know who I am? <laughs> you, you watch those, you're like, man, you are an arrogant punk you know like like you have no clue how society really works and operates and and in in some ways this kind of feels like this and you know i'm i'm standing here on the platform teaching and preaching and saying hey you're supposed to give me not honor double honor (laughs) do you know who i am how dare you complain that way to me? (laughs) I don't get that kind of respect at home, more or less, I don't expect it in the church. No, I'm just kidding. My wife honors me and respects me. Uh, But we are. I mean, we are supposed to give elders double honor. That's what the text is driving us towards. It's cool because it's, unintentional, it just really did happen this way, that, that I'm not an elder. So I stand here as a non-elder preaching this text, but I am someone who is preaching and teaching, um, but uh, there feels that awkwardness that, that, that I'm, I'm asking for something, like my position is calling for something. People inside the church, leaders inside the church should never have a positional leadership that they're demanding, like a, a response from positional leadership. Just because I am a celebrity, you are to treat me a certain way. Just because I am an elder, you should treat me a certain way. Because I have a title. That if you see a place like that, you gotta run from a place like that. It is my observation in the way that I've seen it play out in numbers of different ways, is elders come in as servant leaders saying, we own the gospel as individuals. We love Jesus. We love the church. And that is why we're leading in this way. And we hope to model the very thing that we're asking you to do. So there's this, again, like in a marriage, like this common trust. It's not positional leadership. It is servant leadership. So it's my hope today as we dive through this text that you don't see it as like a positional thing, like um, if you're not giving us respect as elders and and church ministry leaders, you need to start. That's not the heart at all. But the heart is, man, this is what the church should be doing, and we're going to see some really clear things that we hope that we can do well together as the church so that there's mutual love and respect an acknowledgement for people who don't know what go on behind closed doors as well as those who are behind closed doors can enter in and be a part of the community in a way that is a beautiful thing Uh, today as we talk we're going to spend some time on on three things i'm going to first start off by just laying some groundwork before we get into first timothy Um, and what my hope is is in this groundwork that we lay we're able to see ourselves in the midst of this text so we're going to spend a little bit of time there in just a couple of minutes. After we get through that, we're going to move right into to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17, and we're going to um, look at, at the third group that, that Paul is speaking to that I just mentioned a second ago. We're going to look at elders. What I want us to see is four important movements with inside this text. We'll be able to talk about them. We'll be able to hopefully apply them to ourselves and to our lives, and then we're going to close our time together today um, as we just wrap our minds around this fourth group of people that Paul's addressing, bondservants. Or also slaves, as it's mentioned too, with inside of Scripture. And we'll talk about the impact of that and, and what that means for us as well. As we continue to move forward, what I want us to do is just turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where I want to start laying some groundwork for us. As we're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, um, I, I think in preparation, I want us to read this and hear that we, as individuals who are part of the church, that we are called to keep the unity of the church. We as members of the church are called to keep the unity of the church. If you call Harvest Home, this is speaking to every single one of us as a drive and as a call. And there's specific things because we're not walking through and unpacking this text on all levels. There's very much uh, um, good things that we're not going to be able to talk about inside this text. But that's what I want us to see as as we read and unpack this. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It reads, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The people of the church walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one God. There is one salvation. We as the people of the church, We as followers of Jesus, we are the beneficiaries of the grace that is bestowed upon us because of everything that Jesus has done for us and accomplished for us on the cross. There is one God and there is one salvation. And our call as people who benefit from the grace of Christ is to maintain the unity of the church. Because of that, we as followers of Jesus must do this well and understand exactly what God is calling us to, again, as individuals who partake in something so much greater than ourselves. We are to walk in a manner worthy of Christ with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with loving one another inside of Harvest Community Church and all those who attend this place. That is our pursuit. That is our desire. This idea of being unified together in all the unique and individual ways that God chooses to do it. This reads well, right? I can read this and be like, Amen, I I see that. I, I strive for that. There's a problem in the midst of all this. There's a problem that that we live in a world that loves to be divided, right? I, I think there's many personalities inside this, this room that just love confrontation. You love being right. You love getting into that argument so that you can prove your point, right? Now that's not bad. I mean, I think that that's actually a gift that God has given certain personality types, but when we love the division that it brings, that's when we've gotta start asking deeper questions. I mean, we see this on many different scales and levels, right, on the political realm. We see this as a, as a problem and an issue. We love the left, we love the right, and there's nothing in the middle. I mean, that's the voices we hear. We see the TV shows, right, the, the CNNs and the Fox Newses. Fox News is not well and balance. Okay, I'm not gonna get into that, sorry. Um, <laughs> Shoot, that's not in my notes. Um, but we love divisions politically. I think that's what makes a democracy great. But where's it driving our country? Where's it driving us as individuals? Divided. What about socially? Have you guys seen what's going on with some votes going on in New York? Have you seen what Christians have posted on Facebook about that issue? Now, I, I'm, I'm all about... I'm all about um, leading to the idea that abortion is, is not God's intent or design and the way that they've legalized abortion. Like I, I, I will speak in conversation with you very directly about who God is and, and who people are and we're made in the image of God. We're not driving to get in conversations and the majority of people are not driving to make change. They're just making blasted comments to just and it causes division. Again, it has its place, but we love division. What about the theological division? I mean, the church has been separated for centuries over theological divisions. I mean, the whole point of denominations Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, dot, 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 dot. Now we have non denominational. Like, the whole point is theological divisions. Again, it's good. It's good that that we can say this is what we believe, and you believe something, uh, you see it a little different, you interpret it a little differently. But whenever I read in Scripture that the church, big C of Jesus Christ is supposed to be united, how have we taken that to a degree that he never intended? How has our sin come into this and divided in our modern world today, these divisions, I think, are louder than ever because of social media and because of platforms that just allow us to not stand face-to-face with someone, but just put our thoughts out there without any thoughts or ramifications of how people are going to read it or perceive it. We've got to be careful as we seek to be united and maintain the unity of Christ. As followers of Jesus, our job and our call is to commit to one another, to maintain this unity that is found in Christ. And I'm not hitting on the idea that we all need to think the same. And that's what cults do, right? They're told what to think, and they have to think a specific way. With this side of the church, there are all different types of thoughts and ideas, and it is a free place to be able to think differently and have conversations about that. The question is, is what unites us and what could we stand in solidarity on as we have these conversations? How can we leave in a place of loving one another even though we have a heated debate about something? What unites us, but also how do we handle our differences? We as individuals coming into the church, we are all united by the essentials, the gospel of Jesus Christ that is extremely clear through scripture to walk in a manner worthy of that calling that he's led us. The church, the big C church, the church universal. So we got churches all over the Hillsboro and Beaverton area. I'm talking about those churches and churches that existed all, over, uh, all throughout history. It, the church's call um, is called by God to do the exact same thing. Different denominations uh, tend to interpret scripture differently uh, and uh, specifically on specific doctrines. Do we have unity? Do, are we united by these essentials? Do we handle our differences with charity, with charity to preserve the unity of the gospel?
0: Hmm.
1: What about our church, Harvest Community Church? we are held to that very same standard to treat one another inside of our local congregation the very same way. A couple rhetorical questions for you to think through as we just move forward. How would you rate followers of Jesus as a whole in this idea of being unified under the gospel? Secondly, how would you rate churches as a whole as being unified under the gospel what kind of impact can we make as individuals in fighting for that if we see that's god's call for us we see in this slide because this is the core of what we say first timothy is leading us to see what we believe determines how we behave, which determines who the world beholds. Are we a type of people that believes disunity, divisiveness, which leads us to the behavior of fighting, which leads us to the end result of beholding pride and saying, I'm right and you're wrong? Or are we a type of people that displays unity, We believe in unity, and it leads us to behave with love and charity and conversation and disagreement, but in a way that does it, that uplifts Christ, which leads us to Christ. The world beholds Christ when they see us do this well. Are we unified? It must be the goal of our church to operate as a cohesive unit, having healthy conversations about our differences, and uplifting Christ as our core, uplifting Christ as our core, no matter what. I share all this to just lead us into this thought and idea as we dive into First Timothy. This is the importance of elders. Man, elders come in to a church. And they seek to bring unity, to be a leadership, to say, hey, we want to do this well, and we want to lead you well. You guys ever tried to herd cats? If you have, and that's just a figure of speech, if you're like, yeah, I've tried, we got some things we need to talk about, um, but we're not going to go, there. just but the idea of herding cats, right, that, that's church work sorry that I'm trying to relate to you as cats, but you know, when we're left to ourselves, we're all running our own different direction in our own different ways. We have lots of good thoughts and ideas and a lot of, many of them, most of them aren't bad at all, but the leadership is supposed to come around to say, hey, there's so many good things in the world that we could do, but here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. Can you get behind who we are and what we're doing for the sake of gospel in our city and in our world? They weren't there cats Pew. right elders so important the elders are a group of godly men who lead and protect and shepherd the people of the church their role is not to have a position over people a major part of their role is to be with people in addition they work hard to provide guidance and oversight and maintain the unity of the church. That's what elders do, just in a nutshell, because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God over all, through all, and in all. So that's who we are. We're together. This is not an us and a them, this is the church being the church as the elders pray and seek to guide and to lead and to direct and to oversee and to care. So let's dive into 1 Timothy, if you will, and be able to see, the, the, um, see this text. Let's read it together as a whole again. Uh, as we read this, I want you to see four specific movements inside this text, and we're going to talk about these four movements. The first one is um, our call to honor and to respect elders. Secondly, if there is a charge against an elder, um, how do you bring that charge about? uh, Thirdly, if that charge is accurate and there is sin in an elder's life, how should that elder be held accountable? And lastly, our call as a church whenever we select elders um, uh, as a church, um, the idea here is we must not select elders too quickly. So see these things as we read this together. Again, First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is tread out on the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not omit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. For those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God uh, and of Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you not to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Drink lots of wine, 24. Um, (laughs) I I make a joke. It's funny, like no one really knows like exactly what that means. It's in there for a reason. I think that's probably why it's in parentheses. So I'm not gonna make a big deal about it. Okay, Um, and then we get into verse 24. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, so that also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. First thing, we are to honor and respect elders. Again, this is why I wanted us to see the importance of who we are as the church, all of us united together moving forward. The elders surrender to the authority of Christ and serve the people of of the church. But the people in the church surrender to the authority of the elders as they lead and hopefully lead well. But much like a healthy marriage, there should be so much conversation that's happening between these two groups as it's everyone's goal to fight for unity under Christ. Not an us and a them. The church in the elders. We're doing it because they said so. It's, hey, let's do this together moving forward. Verse 17 and 18 again, with the elders who rule, consider worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain, and the laborer deserves his wage what I want us to see here is that this can mean two different things. And this isn't an either or. This is not, it's either this or that. It's, um, it's actually a both and. From everything that I've studied, it, it, it intentionally means both. It starts off with this respect idea. I think it's good for the church to be able to take a step back from themselves and realize what elders do. As they sacrifice from family to commit to lead the church our elders all but one are lay elders so in other words they don't get paid at all from our church our lead pastor is the only one that's on staff so they do it in a volunteer way and so when things come our direction like their direction it's it's good right but just be mindful of all the sacrifices and all the heartache that they put in the blood sweat and tears and the desires and the passions and the conversations to be able to move us forward together as a church i think that's what first Timothy is actually leading us to see is man they sacrifice so much so don't just be so quick to throw out this judgment of i wish the carpet was that i wish this was there i wish that was here i wish that you didn't say that like there's time and place but just be mindful be mindful and secondly, I think more importantly, what it's saying is double honor can actually mean payment. Um, and that's the examples that, that Paul gives. What Paul's is saying is it's not wrong to pay an elder. It's not wrong that an elder gets payment from the church to do what they do. Now, what he's not saying is that we have to pay all elders. But let's start with the, with the first idea. And he gives us two examples with inside of scripture. He dives back to Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 when he says, do not muzzle an ox. And what that passage is really saying is, is it talks about an ox that, pl- that plows a field, a grain field. So after it's done plowing the field, let the ox go into the field and eat the grain that it just plowed. So he's pulling to, from that and saying, hey, if our elders are plowing the field of the church, it is good and it is okay and it is right that, that they receive compensation as a living for what they do, to take care of their family, to take care of themselves, and just like any other job. And the second example he gives, uh, if your Bible's red letter, you see that it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. when he says, a laborer deserves his wage. Now we're not exactly sure where that comes from, but there is that exact quote in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. When Jesus sends out his 72 disciples out into the land to be able to um, meet with people all over the place, he says to them, when you go into a house and you're received and they offer you food, don't feel guilty he says to them, the labor deserves his wage. Don't feel like you're stealing from them. You are working and um, they want to feed you, let them feed you. And Paul's taken that idea to say it's, it's good, it's healthy that a church is able to pay elders for the work that they do. It's good to also know and be able to see Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to read it on your own, where he says he's going out to the church in Corinth to say uh, the very same idea that if you um, share the gospel for a living, you should be able to make a living off the gospel. You should be able to earn a wage from that. Then Paul says, I personally have chosen not to receive that wage. Um, he, he's done it totally differently. I mean, that idea shares to us that we don't, you don't have to. It's not a command, but it is um, something that that is good that is okay it's funny to me I, again not an elder but someone who's worked in, in the church for a very long time it's funny when i talk to people who aren't used to the church and they find out i'm a pastor first of all it shuts down conversation um you're a pastor okay uh i'm sorry for all the things that i just said previously it, no it's don't um but then then the question that follow-up is do you get paid by the church yeah is that full time? <laughs> Have you ever heard cats? Uh, yeah, it's full. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's full time. And then my, my greatest, my, the favorite one is what do you do? <laughs> like, what, how does it, what does that look like? And, and, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that those questions come out. But someone who does what I do, I'm like, man, I don't have enough time in the day to be able to, to lead and organize and plan ministry. So it's just funny what, what people's thoughts are on how people lead the church. But um, this is what scriptures lead us to, to honor elders as we do this together. Secondly, uh, moving on in, uh, I think these next three points are, are a little bit more straightforward. But the second thing that I want us to see here is, is how to, to bring a charge against an elder. Well, One of the first things that goes through my mind when I'm reading this is that, is that elders are human. They're prone to sin just like you and I. They're not in any special relationship with God where they don't sin, right? Elders, everything's broken in their lives just like it is in ours. Sin has come into their world and it's broken sin just like it's come into our world and broken sin. And if we're able to be honest, for some of us who have been a part of other churches in the past, we've, we've maybe experienced painful situations where a church has been domineering and coming in with a heavy hand Um, whether it be one elder who has like a selfish pride issue that could be in the, the toxic that can um that can throw in a toxic environment into a group of men so when one has a sin issue, whether it be a sexual sin or a sin of pride, and comes in and says, I'm going to come in and change the church, my way or the highway, that, that brings a whole different dynamic to a group of men who are submitting unto the Lord, right? But then also, many people have experienced where an entire elder board falls susceptible to sin. I've read time and time again, and it breaks my heart, But when sexual misconduct happens within inside of a church, it may be normal for us to see that church leadership opens the rug, sweeps it under the rug, and puts it back down, and says, "Let's just not talk about it." That's not what Scripture is leading us to. Um, My brother-in-law, he's a member. He has been a member of a church in Montana for a long time, but there was a specific case, a different church that he was, um, he was at. He was leading in lots of different ways, just in a volunteer basis. And the lead pastor was participating in a, a number of shady practices. We'll just say it that way. And, and he felt he needed to have this conversation with his friend, this pastor, to say, man, I've heard this. What's going on? There's a long story there. But at the end of the day, that just kind of blew up in his face. Again, lots to say. A lot's going through my mind. But this happens. Some of our experiences. What do you do? How should we hold, where should we hold the, the elders up to? What kind of standard? It's important that members of the church hold the elders accountable to how they lead the church. And how someone handles that situation is super important. God says, don't do it alone. What if my brother-in-law would have found a friend that agreed, that said, hey, this is a problem, and they came together to that the elder of that church don't do it alone and i think there's a couple of different reasons on why that's super important why scripture points to it because it helps us as members when we feel a certain thing it helps us to see things rightly when we're talking with other people to say hey do you see it this way and someone's like no actually you're way off base if we'll have honest conversation together you're like oh okay good that's helpful for me to see and now i can move forward in unity or you meet with someone like, hey, I've been having those same thoughts, too, and I don't think that's healthy. Maybe bring a third person in and get their thoughts and opinions. And then you come to an elder to have that conversation. That's what Scripture is calling us to. It helps us see things rightly. Also, if there's agreement on your assessment when you talk to the elder, uh, the complaint doesn't seem so personal. It's not a personal attack on anyone of the church. It's, hey, we're fighting for unity here. And I feel like this is a cause of what's, either we're experiencing disunity or we could in the future. Hopefully, that leads to the desire that an elder can hear a complaint well, that it's handled well, where everyone feels loved and respected. Maybe not agree, but that's the desire at the end of the day. I think it's what scripture is pointing us to here thirdly what if an elder persists in sin what if it is brought before an elder that this is a sinful thing and they choose to continue to go down that route i think persists in sin is super key it's not when an elder does something and yells at his kids we need to bring them up on the stage to say he yelled at his kids this week (laughs) i think maybe we should do that because we'd all be like thank god because i did too right um but I, i mean i don't yell at my kids but i'm sure you do you yell at yours um it would make you feel better about yourself. Uh, I mean, it, it, but it is important that, that it is a persisting in sin. This step for an elder goes beyond what Matthew 18, church discipline says. There's a, tons of similarities, but I think that there's an idea that it's driving towards of that when an elder persists and refuses to repent, and maybe even is excused from the elder board, it's important to bring that person up before the church, before the people, to say, here's the situation here's what's going on, to preserve the unity of the church. Public sin from a public office in the church is dealt with publicly. I think that's where we get this idea, right? Matthew 18, good conversation around that. I don't don't think we're called to bring someone on the stage on Sunday morning to say, hey, this is what's going on with church discipline. Um, there's a, a real issue, and the problem is swept on the rug, then the congregation can lose its faith in the leadership. That's why this is so important. You don't want to lose unity. If it's dealt with carefully and the sin persists in their public dealing, then it's to show the church just how seriously we take sin, that the church is not, or that the, the elders do not um, uh, um, side with this behavior. So hopefully the church can see it and be like, yeah, we see the same. Thank you for being honest with us. We can continue trusting our leadership moving forward. Hopefully that's not something we never experience here at Harvest, but this is something that Scripture is clear about. Lastly, what I want us to see is that the church must not elect elders too quickly. The selection process of the church should be done slowly, and I think this text is leading us to say it should be done publicly. This is not a group of men choosing who they want to be and they just never let the church about, know about it and, and they just say, hey, guess where our next elder is? I think it's a slow process and it is done in a public way to be able to get conversations around the character of the person that they're, um, that they're nominating for elder. I think the idea behind this, what we're gonna see in just a second is that rarely is a sin issue, um, that some, a deep-rooted sin issue, rarely is that something that's just a one-off Something that comes off in an elder board two or three, four, ten years down the line, whatever it is. Usually there's roots that chase back that it's been something that's persisted in this person's life for a, a really long time. So being slow and public about it actually sets an elder board, an elder team up for success in who they bring on this team. If they do it too quick, they throw someone on, I think it's calling the elders responsible for not doing it slow enough and publicly enough. Um, let's just look at verse 22 through 25. Again, we will skip the wine part because it doesn't connect directly to what he's saying. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, ordinating, um, uh, elders to be on the elder board. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others. Keep yourselves pure. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment. In other words, some of them are public some of them are obvious, and we can look at that and be like, you know what, that person's not qualified, or they're not ready yet because they're working on something. Let's work with this until we get to a point where they're qualified, and they're ready to be able to be in that conversation, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later, so also good works are conspicuous. In other words, we may see men who we wouldn't count as elders, and like, I don't know if that's something that that, that, that person desires or is ready for, but yet... We do it slowly. We're able to see the good works and so on and be like, I was totally wrong. You're ready to be in the leadership of this church. You need to do it and to do it well. Question as we just kind of end this section before we move into chapter six for those first two verses. As we talk about unity, as we talk about us doing this together, the church and the elders doing this together, holding each other up, building each other up. How are you invested at Harvest? Are you just a regular tender who has little opinion about who we are and what we do? You just kind of come in on Sunday mornings? Or do you see this call for unity, something that you're like, man, either it's at Harvest or it's another church. I need to invest somewhere so that I can feel and be a part of the unity that God says is so beautiful Yes, it happens on the grand scale, the, the universal church level, but it so beautifully happens on the local church level as well. We all have a part to play. We are all in this together. How committed are we? Lastly, I just wanted to spend our last few minutes together um, looking at this fourth group of people that Paul's addressing, bondservants. Bondservants. Slaves um, the last um, th- this th- though this is a different group of people than the elders that we were just talking about, its applications are a little bit different, but it's not divorced from the idea that we're doing this together as a church before we look at this text and, and read it, I think it's important for us to talk ab- about the use of the word. Slave. In my scripture, it says slave, and there's a little um, there's a little footnote that leads me down to say bond servant on the bottom of my Bible. Maybe you have that, maybe you don't. Uh, but but that's that's where scripture is is saying there's some um, differences in this word. I think it's good for us to know that when we read the word slave, we read a cultural implication or a cultural understanding into that word. We naturally are able to think about oppressed people who are being used against their will. That's not what Scripture is pointing to. It's not uplifting the oppressed people. It's talking about something so much different. So it's good for us to see that and to know that. That idea of slaves is not a biblical idea. But this Greek word used in 1 Timothy chapter 6 um, is slaves, bondservant, it actually covers a range of different types of relationships. So um, with inside of the New Testament, uh, the the word bondservant is most often used when someone from the Roman Empire is, um, uh, is officially bound by a contract to his master for up to seven years. So in other words, there's just an agreement. So someone comes in to the Roman Empire, and they agree to work for this person. Usually it's a high-up authority. They sign a contract of what that's going to look like. They agree on it, and he does it for seven years or what's different. That person is called a bondservant. That person is called a slave. I think in our modern understanding, it's not taking this idea way out of context for us to see ourselves as bond servants in our jobs, as students, in the work that we do. If we want to take this ancient idea and move it to the modern context, when we um, agree to work for someone, we sign a contract. I will do this work, I will fill this role description for this amount of pay um, to work for you. And we have freedom to leave that job whenever we want, right? Maybe you feel the social pressure, but it's actually not legally bound to you most of the time, right? So what about a job? Can we connect this idea of being a bond servant? Maybe you're a student in middle school, high school, elementary, or you're in college. Whenever you are in school, you're under contract to be there. They expect certain things from you. Maybe you feel like you're oppressed, you are not oppressed. If you don't go, yes, the cops will come get you and make you go, but you are not oppressed. Um, no, but in all seriousness though, like that's, that's the idea of like, it's not just for a certain group of people. I think we're all connected in a way as a bond servant. So this is talking to us, the work that we do. Um, let's just look at verse one and verse two, and talk about um, and and think about this idea of um, of working for believers. So when we're at school, we're working, right? When we're at work, we're working. When we're at home, and we're um uh we're working, right? So this is the idea that I want to drive drive us down to. For believers, also for non-believers in Jesus. Verse six: Let all who are under the yoke of slavery. Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. You know what's fun? If you just look at uh, chapter 5, verse 3, it talks about honoring widows. You get to elders, it talks about double honor. And it talks about um, uh, people who are in position, bosses in authority, to give them all honor. Something there. I'll just leave that hanging for you. Let all who are under the yoke of uh, yoke as slaves regard his own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have teaching, or sorry, those who have believing masters, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who um, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. As someone is a follower of Jesus, we must represent Jesus well in everything that we do. We come to this place to be united and maintain the unity of the gospel. But it, does not only, it doesn't stop here. When we go out, we get to represent what we experience here to the world around us. When we have these masters, we have these bosses, or we have these teachers, we have these people that expect things from us, we must represent Jesus well to maintain the unity of who we say we are when we are together to the world that is around us. How you talk about that, that looks a thousand different ways, but that must be something we strive for, is to maintain that unity, to represent Jesus well in everything that we do. Whether your boss is a believer or an unbeliever, you must give an impression to your faith in christ are you someone who's dependable do you show up on time do you do the work in a timely manner do you put yourself into the work that you do whether you're a manual laborer or you work in a cubicle or you work at home raising kids do you do it in a manner that is dependable do you um Do you do your job to the best of your ability? When you're there, do you work hard to get your job done? Or do you look forward to the next break just to get by on your job so that you don't get fired for what you do? Students, when you're in class, do you do your work to represent Jesus? Do you show up on time? When the tardy bell rings, there's like this unspoken rule that, oh, I could be two minutes late. Maybe that's a thing. But does that represent Jesus well in what you do? We are called to represent the unity that we experience together with inside the church. We submit to authorities with inside the church. We submit to the bosses that we've signed contracts with, right? Do you submit to the authority above you? In everything, we must represent Jesus well so that the world may behold the Jesus that we believe. That's our heart's desire. The gospel doesn't stop with us. It continues. I want to close our time together, uh, invite the worship team up, and, and as we do, I want to prepare us for receiving communion together. We do communion twice a month um, and one time we deliver communion to you sitting in the chairs and pews. At the other time we ask you to respond. Physically, I think there's a physical response in just standing up and coming forward to say, yeah, this is what I am doing for Jesus. So it's a response. Communion is, um, is a representation of what Jesus has done for us on the cross Going back to the essentials I talked about, the essentials that should unite us as followers of Jesus. So we have all these divisions that we talk about, but the essential is the life and the death, the resurrection and the ascension of who Jesus is. And the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. And the juice represents his blood that was shed for us. This is our unity. No matter what our experience is, this is what unites us. My brothers from this church and that church can come all together and we, if we chose to do so, could all experience communion together because we are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why this table, I think, is so precious and important. If you're someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, um, I'm so thankful that you're here, hearing about who Jesus is, but feel free to just stay where you are. This isn't for people who are discovering Jesus, it's for people who've committed their lives to Jesus. In just a minute, um, the worship team is going to lead us and intentionally lead us in about 30 seconds of um, reflective music for us to sit there, think, and think about um, who Jesus is, what he wants to say to us, what the Spirit is saying to us, to confess and interact with Jesus. And then when you feel ready, I want to invite you all to come forward. There's tables on my sides and one right here, actually, two spots on the table right here in front of me. Take the bread. Dip it in the juice and remember who Jesus is. In the balcony, there's communion at the, at the, the sides as well. So um, please take. Let's be united and be the church together. Let's not depend on a group of men to do it for us, but surrender to their authority as we seek to do it well together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this ability to be able to worship you and in spirit and in truth lead us in conversation with you in these next moments. Spirit, interact with us. Share to us where we are weak. Share to us our sin nature and allow us and lead us to confess that to you as we depend on you for your grace and forgiveness. This is also for your leading. Give us the strength to stand up from our chairs and be able to come forward and just take communion together. Whether we're individuals or we want to do it as a family, pray you lead us well. And lastly, let us worship you as we just close our time together. I love you so much in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.